November 22nd, 2020. I woke up with no voice this morning, so I am going to try to get through this very long entry, but it was so interesting. I just, I hate to break it into several sections. GW Zoo filming with Louis Thoreau and Think Factory. We've been a week with such limited internet service that I don't know where to begin. Howie and I left for Oklahoma last Sunday and chose to drive two days to avoid spending hours in airports and on planes breathing the air of others and risk being brought down by the pandemic. We wore our masks and Howie his face shield on top of that everywhere we went. But the Midwest is the fastest growing area of contagion because most people there either weren't wearing masks or did so with their noses hanging out. Howie's digestive issues made the driving slow, and I feel for him, not being able to eat and digest food properly. I keep suggesting the Vistro meals, as they are easily digested, but he bores of them. Our realtor, Sandra Wells of Basecamp Realty, runs a B&B next to her home in Ardmore. That's where two of these pictures are from. And we stayed there because it was a one-person lodge with no exposure to others in elevators, common areas, maids, etc. It was like living on the set for the wild, wild west, complete with an authentic teepee in the yard. It boasted internet, extended from her home next door, but we couldn't even access email with it. An AT&T service only delivers one bar to Oklahoma, and much of the Midwest, based on me checking it everywhere along the highway. I really should be checking email, but once down that rabbit hole, I may never make my way back. Tuesday, we met with Brian Dale and his three-person crew from Think Factory. They really thought they would have an Animal Planet deal by now, so that's a little discouraging. But they were confident enough that they paid the crew to come shoot. Our mission for them was to show Howie and I coming to the GW Zoo to evaluate the damage, reflect over the abuse that had befallen the animals there, and begin looking for DNA evidence to prove our assertions that young lions, tigers, and ligers were being killed as soon as they were too big to use for pay-to-play schemes. Our series is to be about chasing down the bad guys and bringing them to justice and getting the animals to accredited sanctuaries, so the footage shot at this zoo would be used throughout the series as an example of when things go bad for zoo owners. The shooting would also set the stage for us continuing to pursue Jeff Lowe and save the animals he had taken to Thackerville, an hour south, to a makeshift prison for wildlife. In addition to the film shot for the series, which I've learned never ends up being shared with us, even when the shows don't air, I shot with the drone, my iPhone 11 Max on a DJI stabilizer, and the Insta360 Evo in 360 mode. The most compelling part of the experience still can't be captured for retelling, and that was the pungent smell of cat urine that made my eyes water even six weeks after the last big cats had been removed. The cages were full of feces, but you couldn't even smell that over the cat piss. If I were the USDA inspector, I could have written so many violations that I don't recall them ever hitting Joe or Jeff with. If they did, those infractions were certainly never addressed. Big things, like most of the cages were 16 feet high on one side, but only 8 to 10 feet high on the other three sides. A lion had managed to get up on top of one of the lower sides, nearly escaping. And while that was cited, I don't think the fact that the cage was insufficient there and just about everywhere else was. 
The wooden dens, which were what was trapping most of the scent of cat spray, were clawed to the point that huge railroad spikes were exposed and could catch the cat's skin. They tacked the caging together with welding rather than hog grains, and in many places there were stretches where the wire didn't even touch, and so many places where spikes were sticking out in all angles that could easily cut the cats. None of the water features had any method available for draining and were just huge cesspools. Thankfully, with weeks of not being refilled by a hose, these were drying out and should be pretty easy to fill back in with the mounds of dirt that were drawn from them and dumped alongside. Easy, but not cheap. Probably the most disgusting was the food delivery chutes, which were rusted and caked with the rotted flesh of whatever had been shoved down them over the years. Everywhere the public was allowed to wander was filled with hazards, from broken steps, exposed nails, and viewing platforms with broken braces and rotting floorboards. It's a wonder their primary feature of climbing up two stories to overlook the 140 by 120 foot cage holding at least 14 big cats based on the number of feeding stations didn't result in an entire family being dumped into the melee. It was the places the public wasn't allowed to go that were the most depressing, though. No one with any sense of compassion for animals could have walked into the night houses for the primates and birds and said that it was a humane way to contain the animals at night or in inclement weather. Miniature dungeons, reeking of filth, so dark I could barely see, were where chimpanzees, spider monkeys, colobus, macaques, cockatoos, and parrots spent much of their lives. While there were heating and cooling units installed, did no one check to see that the wiring, what the wiring to them looked like, as it wasn't functional? In some cases, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out the heaters could not have been turned on because the thermostats were hanging from plastic ties right over the heating strips and would have melted the first time the units were turned on. No inspector who saw these conditions could have walked out in good conscience saying there were no violations. We have been told by many inspectors over the years that they were told by their superiors not to write up violations because it would just give groups like PETA and Big Cat Rescue the evidence we needed that animal abuse was rampant across the country. We knew from the trial that in October 2017, Joe Schreibvogel had shot five healthy tigers in the head to make cage space available for the circus that was going to pay him to board their tigers during the off season, as they did each year. Those heads had been dug up by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, tested forensically, and used as evidence. Derek Neal had been shown where this burial site was by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service agent who attended the handover of the zoo to us on October 4th, and they had marked it with an orange plastic fencing. There had been some disappointment over getting Stanford University to come dig up the tigers in this back 40 boneyard. What we want to establish is the age and health of the tigers at the time of death, and more broadly, to establish that cat bones all across the country are related and come from AZA zoo stock originally. We hired a backhoe operator to come reopen this section with the intention of taking some of the remaining body bones for testing. As Will Roy plunged the huge metal claw into the earth the first few times, we thought we must not be in the right spot 
as all that he dropped from the bucket was trash. This entire area was a sea of trash and bones of cows, horses, bison, llamas, and pigs, which were presumably previous meals to the cats. We were tensely watching each thrust into the dark soil and what spilled out when we saw bones. We had hired a tender to watch the property and help clean it up by the name of Eric Catman. Yes, that really is his given name. And he and Brian Dale both had uncanny eyes for spotting bones. The first bones to drop from the bucket seemed too small for a tiger. And given the fact that prey animal bones were everywhere, we weren't too excited. The next scoop pulled up what appeared to be remains of a plastic white trash bag, and the contents were dropped outside of the growing gash in the earth. The next scoop came up, and a big cat skull tumbled from the bucket back into the hole. I'd been called upon to identify skulls all day, and had been texting Jamie and Dr. Justin with photos, only to learn llama, boar, cow, bison, and horse thus far. This skull I recognized immediately, though, as I had seen plenty of them on x-ray, and we had a few in our cabinets for our historic museum display. At once, I felt both horror at the sight and a deep sense of shame for having used such a monstrous piece of equipment that would sever the head from the body in such a way. But we had found what we were coming here to find. The thing was that it was a head, and all of the skulls of the five tigers in question had been dug up by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 2018. So who was this cat? After the initial chatter around the subject, and while I used a black, and while I used a broken plastic fork from the pit to knock away the dirt and roots that were starting to return this cat's form to the dirt we are all made of, Eric turned his attention back to the adjacent white plastic-looking substance. Upon further investigation, there were huge bones and a pelvis, and the white stuff appeared to be the connective tissue that was decaying. I don't know how long it takes the body to decompose, but if this cat had been buried here for three years, it seems like only bones would have survived. It smelled as bad as you would expect. But I picked it up barehanded and laid the body out as best as I could in the high surrounding grass to make out the shape of a cat. Some of the fur made me think it was a lion or a liger. The smallness of the skull makes me think it is a young cat. We carried the remains back to the car, and Eric kindly triple-wrapped it in plastic before Howie put them in the container we had brought for the trip. Despite all that wrapping, I could smell that poor cat all the rest of the trip. We were out of daylight and had found the proof we needed that young cats were being killed and buried out here. We didn't need to do any more digging until we are sure we have a forensics team who can assess the findings and give us a report to share with the world. Dr. Justin Borstein seemed most upset by the findings and asked if he could come dig up every cat here to tell their stories. While I like the idea, I think he has no idea how many hundreds, if not thousands, of skeletons are crying out from this wretched corner of hell. Joe's meat truck had PETAKillsAnimals.com pasted on the sides, and he'd drive it all over the countryside picking up discarded meat from stores and dead animals and roadkill. It had been a refrigerated truck, and there were no freezers at the GW Zoo, so it appears they would pick up the truckload and feed it out as it rotted. 
Jeff Lowe had been cited for this, and it appears the coolers had stopped working. Now the truck was full of something that was rotting and seeping out the closed doors. It was parked out here in the boneyard, and presumably not running any longer. It looked like they had driven it out there to discard the contents on that burn pile, but ended up stranded. Brian Dale wanted to film a call that I had said I had to return to Mary Lynn Haven of Tiger Haven in Kingston, Tennessee. She had been annoyed at me because on November 4th, the Knoxville radio station 102.1 had me on the Mark and Kim morning show as a secret celebrity they had to name based on the questions they asked me. They managed to guess based on just the sound of my voice after guessing incorrectly that I was Miley Cyrus. In the course of the interview, Kim asked if I knew anything about the origin of the, quote, Knoxville Tiger, unquote, which was a story circulating that day of a tiger being spotted running loose near Knoxville. I said that I'd heard about it and that the only place nearby was Tiger Haven. I said that I'd always thought Mary Lynn was one of the good guys, despite not being accredited, and that at least she didn't buy, breed, sell, allow public contact, or take cats off site for exhibition but that recently I'd heard something to the contrary, and I wanted to take another look at her. I didn't expound on it, but what I had heard was that some of the cubs, born to pregnant cats she had rescued, were being used by those who do the talk shows or cub handling before returning. One specifically being a jaguar cub, which will be easier to track down. After the day of filming, Howie and I sat in the office of the GW Zoo, facing the corner of the room where Travis Maldonado had accidentally shot himself in the head while showing off with a Ruger to Josh Dial. Jeff Lowe had cut the section of the wall with the bullet hole and the blood-soaked carpet and sold it to a museum, we were told. Everyone described the drug-addled Travis as a ray of sunshine, but that glow was long since darkened. Mary Lynn was angry that I said she wasn't accredited, because she said she was accredited by the ASA, the American Sanctuary Association. But I pointed out that they hadn't had a board meeting since 2007 and never did site inspections. She said that she didn't join the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries because having the ASA badge on her website had never helped her any. She then said she was angry because I said she bred and sold cubs, and I never believed that, so I knew I'd never said it. I relate to her what I did believe and what I may have said in the interview, which was that she had always been an enabler to the cub pimps and that recently I had heard she might be doing other things that made me want to investigate her further. At first, she took issue with me saying I suspected her of any wrongdoing and said there was plenty she could have said about me. I told her there wasn't anything she could say about me and she said cattily, quote, well, my goodness, you are just on your own little throne, aren't you? Unquote. To which I retorted that no one could accuse me of improper animal care, and she didn't know anything about my personal life, so there was nothing that she could say about me. Mary Lynn says she currently has 254 big cats, and back several years ago she had 300. I asked about spaying and neutering the cats, and she kind of danced around it, but she stated that she doesn't breed. Stephen Henning was a big rescue in Arkansas in 2002 near Betty Young's place, where several lions escaped. She took 34 cats from him who were pregnant and delivered. She said those cubs and the two from a similar situation were the only cats ever born there. She claimed she never sent cubs out to Tabro or others, 
and she said she'd have to document them leaving if they had cubs, which is true, but rarely done by those in the industry. That sent her back to defending her role in enabling all of the bad guys, and I rattled them off from the top of my head. 49 big cats this year from Jeff Lowe, many cats including snow leopards from Tanganyika and others. I had told Brian that Mary Lou would try to use the same worn out excuse that she gives her workers and supporters, which is that she takes cats no questions asked, because if she didn't, then the cats would suffer. I pointed out again that she only exacerbates and expands the abuse by giving the cub pimps an easy way to offload animals who are no longer profitable and make space for breeding more cats to abuse. We went round and round on that until Howie pointed out that we were never going to agree on that. I wasn't willing to let it go, though, and asked Mary Lynn if there was any way she would alert us before doing such a thing again. I wanted her and the viewer of this film to know that she has absolutely no intention of doing anything that would stop the flow of last year's cubs to her because she needs that constant influx to keep workers and donors giving. Howie and I both told her we had Jeff Lowe in a corner and could have ended his abuse of wild animals once and for all if she hadn't given him an easy way out. Now he'd moved reportedly 20 big cats to Thackerville, where he was not subject to USDA, USDA inspection. Mary Lynn admitted that she isn't inspected by USDA either, saying she doesn't need to be licensed because she doesn't buy, breed, sell, or exhibit. She said I'd accused her of breeding on the radio show. I didn't. What I said was I didn't think she was breeding and dealing in cats until now, but that I had been hearing things to the contrary and wanted to look into it. I told her I have heard that. She said, quote, well, I don't know where you heard it from. The only one who I can think of would be Samstag, and if he said that, he's lying, unquote. I asked why Samstag would say that, and she said, quote, I don't know why he would say that. I don't think he did. That's the only person I could think of. He was around here quite a bit, but we never did any breeding while he was here, unquote. I didn't remember him being there until she said it. Mike Weber had been filming there, so I thought that it was he that had relayed that indiscretion to me, but didn't reveal who said it, and later both Mike and Michael denied it was them. We called Sam Stagg, and he said he'd used Tiger Haven as B-roll for much of the hidden tiger, because the cages could have been any of the places he covered. Both filmmakers said that Mary Lynn was not willing to help end the problem openly. Mina said Mary Lynn was taking the pups born of purebred dogs she'd rescued, but that's a whole different matter. Interesting, interestingly, Mary Lynn said there were probably 80 to 114 big cats left as she drove out of the gates of GW Zoo in August, with the last 24 she took. She said there could have been more if she didn't walk the property. So where did all those lions, tigers, and likers go? The next days, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, our filming would be with Louis Thoreau, who had been here to do a follow-up story about who Joe Exotic really was. Louis had been to GW Zoo in 2011 on several occasions during filming and had produced America's Most Dangerous Pets. It was the first time anyone in mainstream media had taken seriously the abuse of big cats in this industry and the crazy people who profited from that abuse. It was a BBC production, though, and very few of the people in the U.S. ever saw it, from what I can tell. Howie had cultivated introductions to them with Yari Schreibogel, David Stanton, Kelly Hurd, and Chelsea, who was Joe's niece, 
and the caregiver to his mother and father until they died. These family members had never told their stories about the experiences that Joe was always a cruel, manipulative animal abuser. These film crew members, David and Kelly, had seen and filmed so much abuse that never saw the light of day and had not shared their stories either. All of this access to the people and location were the elements that Louis and his team said was unprecedented in their careers. There was so much sadness, agony, and despair emanating, emanating from every pore on the ground at this Winniewood location that I might have been totally overwhelmed had I not held tight to the belief that we all sign up for our roles here back when we are in the ether, and I was merely documenting for all history the sacrifices these animals had made. I was stopped by the impression of big cat prints left in the hard, sun-baked mud of the area that was referred to as the arena. It had been a horse-riding arena before Joe's parents bought the land back in the late 90s. Now this area was the arena where the yearlings were housed together and on display to mislead the public into thinking that it's normal for lions and tigers to interact and to make people think the cats had a lot more space than they did when the public wasn't watching. Howie is unable to walk very far and just standing is treacherous for him as he no longer has any sense of balance due to the surgery on his spine, not giving him the relief he'd hoped for. At least he's not in physical pain, but I can see the emotional pain is just devastating because he feels so helpless. I am always on a tightrope of trying to make him feel independent, and yet worrying that just one bad fall will result in a broken hip. How many times have we seen people not recover from that and just give up and die afterward? Sandra rented a Sandra rented a Kubota diesel work cart, so Howie drove that around in the areas that were wide enough. He rode the scooter I got him for this purpose on the more narrow paths where, where they were paved. He wanted to be everywhere and do everything, though, and his hiking poles weren't much help as he staggered and careened about trying to keep up. At one point, he fell in the dark as he stepped into a hole and apparently scraped his shin pretty badly, although he never complained. I saw it while doing his physical therapy session this morning and asked where he got that gash. One moment, he really had me holding my breath, but how he was determined to do it. He pulled the Kubota up alongside the meat truck and climbed up onto the highest point of the cart he could climb with his spray paint can. He then changed the text from PETAKillsAnimals.com to PETAThrillsAnimals.com and sent the photo of his handiwork to Brittany Pete at PETA. That went viral in the organization, made us all feel better about this backdrop to all of the piles of decaying animals and trash in the boneyard. Later, we opened the truck to see what was oozing out, but the stench was so bad we had to shut the door after snapping just a few shots inside. Later, we would wonder if the huge, oddly-shaped, wrapped mounds were the missing tigers. We can always go back and check, and maybe after enough time, the smell will have dissipated somewhat to make it possible. Despite all of the impediments, Howie did an excellent job of relaying the stories and timelines to both film crews. He's been the one who has dealt with Joe since 2010 and Jeff since 2016. And because Howie is writing his book outline right now, he has all of that information top of mind. 
He's learning how the media just wants sound bites and has really perfected his ability to cram as much pertinent information into one sentence as possible. We were feeling that this trip couldn't be any better when it came to accomplishing our ultimate goal of ending the cub handling in private possession, but we were wrong. On Thursday, the 19th, the Department of Justice filed a complaint accusing Jeff and Lauren Lowe of violating the Endangered Species Act, quote, by illegally taking, possessing, and transporting protected animals, unquote. It also accuses them of violating the Animal Welfare Act, quote, by exhibiting without a license and placing the health of the animals in serious danger, unquote. Quote, the Lowe's animals have suffered from and continue to suffer from easily preventable or treatable conditions, which in some cases has caused the untimely death of animals, unquote, the complaint states, alleging that the Lowe's, quote, have then burned or otherwise disposed of the carcasses, including tigers, in makeshift pyres, unquote. The complaint seeks an injunction to bar any further unlicensed public exhibition of the animals, halt any further violation of federal wildlife laws, and order the Lowe's to turn over to federal authorities any animals covered by the Endangered Species Act. Lowe's attorney, Daniel Card of Oklahoma City, declined to comment. On Friday, we met with Garvin County Sheriff Mullet and Captain White to let them see the zoo, now that it was empty, and to assure them that they would never have another wildlife zoo here. They recognized that we had pretty much cleaned up their county, sending all of the criminals and derelicts to Love County. I should have asked that they appoint Howie as an honorary deputy, but we were asking for something more important. Howie asked if he'd endorse our federal bill as one more attempt to persuade Senator Inhofe to sign on as a co-sponsor. Derek had claimed to know the senator as well, and Howie made the same request of him to reach out and explain why it was important to Oklahoma to end cub handling and private possession. We left there to have our windshield replaced at Trophy Auto in Lone Grove, as we had developed a crack on the second day of driving to Oklahoma. From there, we tried again to meet with Love County Sheriff Grisham, but he wasn't available. We wanted him to be sure. We wanted to be sure he knew that the DOJ was seeking an emergency inspection of the Tiger King Park in Thackerville and was expecting to do an emergency seizure of big cats. We wanted to let him know that the Big Cat Sanctuary Alliance is able to place all of the animals so they don't end up going to another horrid zoo. He wasn't available, but the message was delivered, and we spent Friday and Saturday driving home. How we read the extensive U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Department of Justice complaint against the Lowe's. We were very happy to see them take the position that removing cubs for handling is a violation of both the Endangered Species Act and the Animal Welfare Act, and if they win on this point, it ends cub handling. There was one section where they said it was a violation to pull the cubs and lemur pups and have them interacting with the public and each other. What I am not clear on is if they are talking about the lemur pups and cubs interacting with each other or lion cubs interacting with tiger cubs as not being compatible. That would be a stretch if not for the case of Julie, the lion, who was born in 2004 and died in 2006 after Joe put her in with two tigers for the purpose of breeding ligers. The tigers ripped off her right front arm and ate it. Julie received no medical care and died after days of whimpering in agony. This had been filmed by PETA in 2006, and Brittany Pete said she'd copy the Thoreau team with the footage that I'd remembered. I could forget it all those years ago. 
In my wandering about, I found a marble headstone for Julie and contacted the donor, a medical doctor in Oklahoma City, named Dr. Y, telling him he could come pick it up. Gay Lynn said the doctor had been a huge donor, over $25,000, and used to give Joe scripts for any meds he needed under the pretense of meds for being for the animals. We got in around 8.20 p.m. last night and couldn't wait to see the cats and then soak in the jacuzzi. Mainstream media says zoo serves no purpose. Damien Aspinall runs the Aspinall Foundation and two wildlife parks, but in this article says that zoos serve no purpose and should be phased out over the next 30 years. Until now, I have not seen any mainstream media outlet give voice to my beliefs, other than a couple who mused at the thought of AR and VR zoos replacing the status quo last year. Espinal states, quote, zoo regulations should not be undertaken by zoo people, but by external experts, including wildlife conservationists. To obtain a zoo license must do the following. All species in the zoo that are not extinct in the wild or critically endangered should be phased out over the next 20 years, as well as any species with disease, hybridization, or lack of genetic viability. Every zoo should have an active reintroduction program of the species they keep and should phase out the species for which they have no reintroduction program. In 10 years or less, urban zoos or zoos of less than 50 acres should be closed or only hold a maximum number of species of individual animals. All health records, as well as hybridization issues, should be open, transparent, and made clear to the public, and full genetic profiles should be built up of all species. All animal shows must stop immediately. No animal can be locked out on a permanent display and must be given decent areas of privacy to avoid stress. Animal training for research or veterinary reasons has to have specific goals and guidelines to avoid unnecessary interference in their natural behavior. A minimum of 10% of zoo gate receipts must directly be invested in in-situ conservation projects, including mandatory funding of in-situ conservation for species they hold and discretionary funding of other conservation efforts, all of which must be fully transparent. Zoos must justify that any amount over 250 pounds spent on new enclosures is not better spent on protecting the wild." Unquote. If you're enjoying my diary, please like, share, and subscribe. You can find other ways to connect to me over at bigcatrescue.org forward slash carol.baskin.